welcome to the nib section. Unfortunately, due to the very wintry bouts of flu that are pretty prodigious in Sydney at the moment, several of our hosts were out of commission and we weren't able to record according to our usual schedule. But lucky for our listeners, I am on Skype right now with one of our earliest guest hosts, Ruben Tabuto. You will have heard him in, let's see, I think it was episode two, the one on handwriting and calligraphy. Do you remember that episode, Ruben? Yes, I think so. It was some time ago, but yeah, it was the, the episode we did on calligraphy with uh, Tavit, I believe. Yeah, and that was terribly good fun. So it's wonderful to be back. Ruben, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, I've been with the Fountain Pens Oceania Group for mm, probably about two years now, two and a half. Most people probably know me because I'm one of the few people who does broad-edged calligraphy um, in the group, and I hang out a lot with Tavit, who's the other calligrapher. I remember that you also have a, was it a YouTube channel where you do calligraphy live? Uh, Yes, that is rather lapsed. Unfortunately, postgraduate study has killed a lot of my spare time, among other things, so I haven't updated in a while, but I do have a couple of episodes I've been meaning to release that might make an appearance in the next month or so. Okay, uh, maybe the dropping of this episode will encourage you to <laughs> release some more clips, more videos well, I, on YouTube. I have been having a few comments on the channel about people worriedly ask, yeah, worriedly asking if I'm okay, which is very sweet, but also <laughs> a bit of a guilt trip. <laughs> I see. So I should probably get onto that. It's a very gentle nudge. Yeah. Time to update, Ruben. <laughs> I'm glad you're here, Ruben, because the topic for this particular episode is one that you came to me with. You wanted to talk about evolution of handwriting and how handwriting has changed over history, but more specifically how your handwriting has been changing um, from when you started using fountain pens and also, I think, when you started doing calligraphy. Yeah, well, I mean, my own personal journey with handwriting sort of came from mainly the calligraphy. I think the studying calligraphy is an excellent exercise in fine motor skills. Um, I will also uh, admit that uh, I can probably attribute some of my handwriting improvement to the fact that I was quite the nerd in high school and I was into painting Warhammer miniatures, which was another exercise in frequent use of fine motor skills. So it was a combination of calligraphy, that, and eventually when I I started using fountain pens, I've always admired my dad's handwriting, which is a bit corny, but he uses something that's called, I think it's South Australian cursive because his high school education was in South Australia Mm -hmm. uh, and they have their own sort of interesting take of cursive that's, I'm not very well educated on the finer points, but sort of like an English copper plate kind of style. Sure. A mix of that and then later Spencerian when I think I saw Sharon's handwriting and was immensely envious, as I'm sure most of us are who've seen her handwriting. And so it just became this interesting little mishmash of that. Yeah, it's been an interesting little journey. And I was interested to see how other people might have developed their own handwriting, whether that was influenced by getting into fountain pens or whether it was entirely separate from the tool that they used to, to write with. Using this topic as something to kick off conversation, I submitted a question on Fountain Pens Oceania, our Facebook group. I got some really excellent comments from our members on whether they thought cursive was dying, what they thought the future of handwriting would be in the next, you know, um, decade or so from a 
very broad demographic of people, you know, from teenagers who are still in high school to teachers and parents and um, older members who still remember being taught um, cursive and writing a lot with pens. But before we get into that, let's do our preamble. What are you writing with, Ruben, today? I am actually writing with my second vintage pen. Uh, this is a, I've got a Shepherd Triumph. It's a striated grey celluloid and it's got the um, that classic, I think it's 14 carat Triumph nibs and it is gorgeous. I think I've made a terrible, terrible mistake when I bought this pen. <laughs> I have, I've since actually bought another vintage Shepherd and I'm probably just going to spend all my money on vintage Shepherd nibs. From Slippery now. slope. Vintage yeah, Schaefer's. Yes, yes. I think I saw a photo of that Schaefer um, that you posted on the group. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I was very excited when I got it. And what are you writing with tonight? Okay, um, what I'm writing with is my current daily carry, I guess you'd call it. In my bullet journal, I have with me always a vanishing point with a fine nib. And right now it's a, I think it's the limited edition vanishing point. It's called Sunset Blue. I think that's the name. Oh, yeah, I think I've seen that one. Yeah, it's this really quite vibrant aquamarine purplish blue color with um, a marble effect. Yeah, we'll have to swap photos then. I'll send you one <laughs> yes, the I will send you a photo. Balancing point. Cool. But if you hear me clicking, that's yeah. what it is. <laughs> oh, we love that click, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing quite like it. Definitely. I wanted to read this review that we got from Mark Backus. He is at Nib Grinder on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All things pens, five stars. Great fountain pen related podcast with a nice variety of contributors to the show that makes it super interesting. Especially enjoyed the latest podcast about nibs. Smiley face. <laughs> Thank you, Mark, for your comment. And don't forget, if you want to leave us a review or a comment, you can do it on iTunes, on Twitter, or on Instagram, or you can email us at thenibsection at gmail.com. Okay, Ruben, let's get into this. Okay. When we started talking about handwriting, I always want to um, contextualize the place of fountain pens in specifically in English or, you know, cultures that use Roman Latin alphabets um, right. and contrast that with, you know, other cultures who might not, you know, be writing the same characters and be using very different tools to write those characters. When I was thinking about that, in preparation for this episode, one thing that I wondered about is because it was interesting you were commenting about the fact that fountain pens are not inherent to, you know, non-Latin alphabet-based writing. You know, it's interesting to see because I have very, very limited experience in Japanese. I mean, I studied it for a few, few years, but the way that traditionally it's a lot, it's all brush writing is um, them having used the similar system from uh, China mm -hmm. uh, and the way that there's that line variation that you just don't really get with a lot of like, yeah. tools for Latin alphabets. So, yeah, I thought it was interesting to explore, you know, how that translates because you look at, I guess, ways that people have tried to adopt fountain pens like as a, as a tool, as you said, to address that issue. So, like, we look, I think you and uh, Brian might have those um brush pens the the cartridge fed brush pens oh i have a few of them yes they tend to be um japanese right platinum i think makes them so might pilot 
But there's also a lot of companies now that make colored ones, you know, for people who want to do brush lettering. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) They look like terribly good fun. But, yeah, I was just – I'd be really interested to hear your views on on that because, you know, I'm somewhat ignorant on the finer points, if you will. Ah, excellent pun. (laughs) Sure. Okay, I – I'm going to try during this episode to end up with, you know, like a grand theory or um, a grand thesis about handwriting and how it's changed. And, you know, maybe this is one one pillar that holds up my views. And it's that if writing, if handwriting changes over time, you know, um, in a particular society or it's seen to deteriorate, you know, there's no need to put a pejorative, you know, view on it necessarily because it changes for all sorts of reasons. You know, it could change because the tool we're writing it with is different now. It could change because people are just writing less like it does these days. Um, I'll use Chinese as an example or even Japanese. You were saying that um, handwriting traditionally, I think, um, what now is considered traditional Chinese and Japanese handwriting, it was written with a brush. I think yeah. usually a horsetail brush or something like that. And that allowed you to incorporate different pressures and line widths, you know, and it gave you these great little splatters when you, you know, stroked it, stroked the brush across the paper with a lot of ink and these really expressive lines and um, like the kind of cursive that you can do with a large and very dark inky brush is quite beautiful. And that's why it's calligraphy and that's why it's so hard. Because controlling that much ink in the brush is is just, it takes a master. But that was old, you know, that's that's considered old handwriting. And what was just writing back then is now considered calligraphy. And people, most people don't bother with it anymore. And what is current, the prevailing kind of Chinese handwriting does not have those line density differences right because people are writing with ball points or with gel tips or with gel ink and um, with felt tips and so Chinese characters now they don't have that same the different line widths or the line widths are uniform and that means the characters look different and is, is that better or worse I mean should we force people to write with a brush all the time just to make them more authentic I, I think that's an incredibly backward sort of a view. Mm. And just because the the typography and the type of handwriting has changed, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's it's natural. Right. Okay. Right? Um, that's what I mean when I say, you know, as technology changes, the handwriting necessarily changes. So if you look at the pe- way people write you know, um, in the 15th century, it's completely different to the way that they write now. And that's because writing had different functions. They were using different things to write it with. And it's not necessarily a degradation of handwriting. It's just the handwriting itself is a different thing in each Mm. particular society in each time period. Do you think that's sort of the same thing in in English? Um, I I have trouble (laughs) saying English-speaking cultures because it's such a broad category, right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) But let's say in the Anglo-Saxon tradition and in Australia. (laughs) Yeah, let's go with that. (laughs) 
Um, well, um, to a point, like I, into, it, it had a similar journey, I guess you could say, between going from what, what we would consider rather archaic ways of writing to sort of, I guess, more si- simplified uh, approaches in that just briefly touching on it because I know otherwise I'll ramble on this for half an hour. <laughs> you look at the calligraphy example, you know, we started off with broad-edged pens and writing any one letter would take, you know, like a, a second or two and you, you think, oh, you know, a second or two is not too much but when you're trying to write a full page, you know, that's an eternity. Interestingly, I think we were, I was touching on this when we were talking before the, the pod, Throughout each era of history in calligraphy, if you look at the hands, there was the formal style and then there was always a, a cursive style which was designed to be written out much quicker relative to its cousin hand that looked a little bit similar but the the actual form had changed. Uh, and then as we started going towards pens, you didn't get the variation in line with um, that you got with calligraphy the same way that transferring from the brush when writing in uh, Putonghua, for example, mm-hmm. Chinese for, <laughs> for those of us. Um. <laughs> Actually, I have to correct you there. Putonghua is Putonghua is the um, spoken dialect. So when it's written, it's not called Putonghua. It's there just Hanzi. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, though. I learned something new today. So, yeah, case being case in point. So with the different writing system, um, with the change from the brush to the pen, the change from the broad-edged pen to, mm-hmm. you know, the fountain pen or the pencil or whatever, naturally the letter form changed and the way we wrote changed and it's no, as you were saying, it's no better or worse. I mean, you look at Spencerian, you look at Palmer script, you look at the other, the various cursive hands and they're very beautiful in their own way. Um, it's just a different way of right. you know, approaching writing. Yeah. Oh, can you explain to me, um, going back to what you just said, what is what do you mean by a broad-edged pen? Just um, the easiest way to look at it from a uh, fountain pen user's perspective is uh, the stub nib. So it's okay. rather than having a single point, it's um, a flat plate, and depending on the angle that you hold it and the direction that you draw, uh, the width of the line changes. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's not as flexible as brushes because brushes you can change. You have a very, very wide range of line width you can um, apply based on pressure. This one's limited to you hold it at a 45-degree angle and then draw, pulling down and to the right gets the thickest line. Pulling down and to the left gives you the thinnest line. A pilot parallel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the, the classic example. So what would be the historic version of that? I mean, before parallel, parallels and stub nibs existed, what would they have used to create those kinds of characters? Um, traditionally, it was actually a goose feather that they would cut into that shape. Oh, I uh, see. And I can tell you right now, it is a complete pain in the backside through. It's actually an art. It's um, And they still, do, they still do something similar when making uh, just point of interest, little digression. Uh, the Torah. So I can never remember the the exact pronunciation. I believe it is um, Sofit or Sofa. I'm sure our friend um, from FPO Yoki will give me endless crap for mispronouncing it. But it's they actually have a very specific way of cutting it. But it was. But the long and short is, it was to create functionally what a parallel pen does. It was a flat tip writing instrument, and you would just dip it in ink, and then you would make the marks using that. And then they started using 
steel and they still make steel nibbed dip pens, which mm -hmm. is what I used to use when I was learning calligraphy. And then um, as fountain pens became popular, there were stub nibs and parallels and that kind of thing. They're just, it's just developed to fit the technology. Do you know, you know, when fountain pens were first invented, I think it would probably have been around mid 19th century or late 19th century. Um, what would be the kind of, what, what would be the dominant uh, handwriting style of that period? Uh, that is an excellent question. And I have to admit that I don't know the exact answer. <laughs> um, you probably have to speak to, to, to Vete or someone like that. I suspect it would be something in the vicinity of a business hand, similar to Spencerian or um, Palmer. I know that Palmer came about in the 40s, I think, or maybe later. Yeah, um, yeah earlier version. Earlier than that. So there would be like a proto version of a business hand that they would have used. Chinese characters written in cursive are simplified and abstracted to the point where it's very hard for someone who doesn't, or even for um, Chinese readers to read someone else's cursive. Actually, you know how um, people say that children these days, their handwriting is suffering because they don't get to write as much? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's worse in Chinese because a lot of the characters, without constant repetition, your hand just loses that muscle memory of how to form the oh. characters. So you can remember how to read them, but there are plenty of words that you just don't use often enough. And when you try to recall how to, you know, create those characters, um, even for a fluent speaker and someone who reads regularly, they, they just forget. Um, I know my parents and people I work with, they have that same issue. So it'd be really interesting to see where um, Chinese characters and the handwriting of them evolves in the next couple of decades, you know, as we do more typing yeah, that would be really – yeah, I, I have to agree with you definitely. I'd be interested to see, you know, wh where the future takes us on that, especially with the – I guess the word pervasive would be the one I'd use, mm -hmm. the almost aggressive march of English being used standardized and speaking as an English speaker. I I worry about that myself actually. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've always loved writing systems from various cultures. I mean, the reason I studied Icelandic is because it has letters that we don't use anymore. Um, I used to really love looking at Cyrillic calligraphy, and I'm subscribed to a few Cyrillic calligraphers, um, people who write in Russian and um, similar related lang Slavic languages, I think is that Slavic term. Um, but, yeah, I think all writing systems beautiful, and it would be a shame to see them sort of, disappeared with English. So I hope even if they become simplified or whatever, as, as you've explained with Chinese, that there's still some form of them floating around somewhere. Well, it already is simplified. Um, I don't know if you know that there are two, the, the two dominant um, standards for writing Hanzi or Chinese characters. There's the simplified and the traditional style. So traditional is used in Taiwan. It's used in, I think, um, texts that have been published generally pre-1960s or 1950s or so around that period. And nowadays it's used on the Chinese mainland only for, you know, it's used the way that um, Gothic characters might be used in the West to emphasize um, a historical context or, um, you know, to give that sense of culture 
to a particular signage or things like that. But only in Taiwan, I think, and in Hong Kong is it still very broadly used. And on the mainland instead, they use a simplified version of Chinese characters. And it's a simplification that reduces the number of strokes in a lot of characters. And I think the the thought behind it was to make um, literacy more pervasive in China because the time that it was introduced, um, literacy was very low and it was to make Chinese characters easier to read and easier to learn. Oh, wow. Okay. But the critics of um, simplified Chinese, they say what you're losing is, you know, a lot of the history that the symbols tell you about, you know, where that character came from and what it used to mean. In the course of abstraction, you know, you lose meaning or secondary meaning, embedded meaning in that character. And so it's, it, it's, a, it's a very old and um, sometimes quite dramatic uh, debate. But we can leave that aside for now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and instead, we can talk about different styles of handwriting of Latin characters that are still, you know, commonly well known today. Yeah, well, because um, when when you were discussing that, and it's fascinating to hear the way that you were saying, because correct me if I'm wrong, um, the Chinese system is, I guess, is pictographic the term? Like you can pick up, I guess, themes and stuff um, mm-hmm. from from looking at the, the radicals used in each word. Is I think radicals is the term, like the, the mini symbols within the the some of the, the words. Right. Um, but we don't really have that in English, but you you were talking earlier about the um, the comments that we were receiving from the the community on the topic of the handwriting in terms of um, simplification of handwriting, uh, and I think you you touched on the issue of approaches to cursive that are ch- and the shift towards block letters being more common. What we got was we got several comments from FPO members that touched on block lettering. I think quite a few people mentioned that to get by in, you know, in society, well, in Australia, at least nowadays, really all you need is to be able to write in block characters, to be able to print. Right. And printing is the only kind of handwriting that some people will be able to read because they've lost that ability to read cursive because I think – it's cursive. Really, you really do have to teach people how to read it. There are different styles of cursive and some styles are harder to read than others because they look very different to printed characters. Yeah, true. For example, I think in some styles with cursive, at least in Latin alphabets, um, people have no idea what a cursive R looks like in some handwriting styles because it just looks it bears no relationship to like a block letter R in some cases. Exactly. Yeah. And and actually, even if you read um, books that were printed uh, last century, not last century, in the 19th century, sometimes they use that sort of archaic R or S. Um, oh, the S ligature. Yes. Yes, I'm a big fan of that one. I <laughs> actually was trying to use it myself at one point. <laughs> what is it called? The, the, well, the S ligature or the long S. The one that's like an F, but yes, stroke. Yes, oh, <laughs> it, that makes no sense to me. But um, <laughs> yeah, brush. Moving along. <laughs> moving along. <laughs> but um, the other the other type of comments we've got about block letters is um, from people who can really only write legibly in block letters. They're saying they really encourage 
children now to exclusively write block letters in certain exam situations. Because even though block lettering is slower, it's slower to print than to write in cursive, um, because their handwriting is so bad when they're writing in cursive, the teachers just say, you know, do block characters, then at least we'll be able to read it. And it's interesting to look at that because it. I wonder whether it's because people talk about that as like an, an indictment of of culture in terms of um, oh people can't even write cursive anymore. But it would be interesting to look at it from from another perspective as even going back to an, like earlier forms of writing because uh, in some of those comments I think didn't Max Max Schumacher our our good friend who appears quite frequently on the pod said that. You made the point that in Roman times, at least, that block letters were the most common. Um, even yeah, I, I don't know how that translates to cur- their cursive style, but you know maybe we're just going back in time and we're we're going back to to the more simplified, clearer way of writing. Um, so it could be seen as you can look at it from whether it's a degradation because we've lost the art, if you will, of cursive, or whether we're just simply going back to a, a style that's simpler and makes more sense for our context this is all you know empty theorizing because i don't have the facts to bake this to base it (laughs) to base these comments on but um you were saying in roman times how they wrote like all in capitals and often with no spacing between words right and they left out words all the time and it's it's really hard to read nowadays (laughs) Um, yeah but they they were writing or what survives of their handwriting is generally on stone Right? right. Yeah. So yeah. So cursive would not have survived even if it existed. No. Well, they had they had clay and wax tablets. I think. Is is it possible to do cursive like that? I I don't know. Uh, I think they may have. And don't quote me on this because my ancient history is pretty rusty. They just used a, a a metal stick and they would just cut like scroll out on clay or on wax. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a cursive approximation of the the Latin letters that they'd use. It wouldn't have the same obviously chiselled marks that you get on the carvings, but like a, an approximation, I imagine. But it's hard to say. It's again, as you say, empty supposition because I don't know how many examples of that we still have floating around. Like because wax tablets would just get scraped down and written over all over again. It's not meant to last. The, yeah, and the clay ones. I mean, unless you fired them, then they melt away as soon as anything like as soon as I got wet oh that's true hello this is Diana with a correction during the editing process I was doing some further wiki research and I discovered that there is in fact a script called Roman cursive there's a link to it in our show notes it is much less joined up than English cursive scripts like Spenserian but it is definitely lowercase characters and in a much more what consider a simplified style than the Roman capitals so consider all of our conjectures in the previous section to be invalid. And that just goes to show that you can never do enough research. And now back to the episode. But um, to make that comparison, um, to finish that comparison, you know, back then they might have written with stylus on tablets or, um, you know, carvings on stone. And nowadays you must have read that article that said um, ball points killed cursive. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, I'm a bit hazy, but I'm pretty sure I remember reading bits of that, yeah. Yeah, I remember reading bits of it too. I also remember quite a lot of um, criticism of the argument, but I think the point it was making was that 
bore points make it so difficult to write cursive and so impractical to write cursive because you need to press so hard that it's just a tool that is naturally more geared towards printing, to writing in print or in block characters. Right, yeah. So that's 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 basically the sort of argument, um, another version of the argument that I started out with, which is that the tool that you're using, it really, it really t- you know, leads you in a particular direction as far as what kind of handwriting style or what kind of characters you're producing. Yeah, yeah, I can totally see where you're coming from there. And I'd, I, would, I would agree. I'd agree that, okay, so, yeah, I haven't written consistently with a ballpoint for about two years now. But I do remember uh, the last time that I did, I was surprised at how much pressure you needed to apply to have the the tool make the mark on the paper. And um, it was, I don't know, it was a very alien feeling coming from fountain pens because you're so used to sort of just skating across the page with your nib and writing with the ballpoint, especially given their disposition towards uh, running dry and have having to do that old trick of the endless scribbled circles until it starts writing again. You just get so used to pressing very, very hard. And it's, I would agree with you, it's not hugely conducive to to cursive handwriting. It sounds like we're going to start getting into our own handwriting styles and um, how it's changed with the kind of tools that we use. But before we get fully into that, um, there's a couple of news items that I wanted to read. Sure. So first thing, this episode is being released in late June. And in one month's time, we are having our podcast's first anniversary. I think that episode will be released in late July. That means there's going to be a special Q&A episode for our one year anniversary. And we are asking our listeners to please, please, please send in their questions. Um, You can do that on our Discord channel. If you have the link to that, you can also do it on Facebook, Twitter, just at the nib section on Twitter or Instagram. Or you can just email us. Our email address is thenibsection at gmail.com. And if you really want your uh, question to be heard on the episode in your voice, you can also send us an audio clip and we will play it in the anniversary episode. So please send in your questions and your audio clips. I believe, Ruben, you've already recorded a clip for that episode. Yes, I I may have done a a cheeky um, anniversary message with Tavit and with Ben. We had a lot of fun recording that, I will say. (laughs) The second piece of news is, I think only last week, the announcements for the Pelican Hub's for this year were released on the Pelican website. And I think emails were also sent out to last year's attendance. So this year's Pelican Hub will be held on September 21st, all around the world. I think the same time as last year, it's a Friday or a Thursday night at 6.30 p.m. Um, I haven't got my diary in front of me, so I can't remember what day of the week it is. But please, if you want to attend the Pelican Hubs, and I strongly suggest that you do, go to the link in our show notes or just Google Pelican Hubs 2018 and there'll be a there'll be a page where you can register. And you can also nominate yourself to be a Hubmaster if you like. If you don't know what the Pelican Hub is, Ruben, what is the Pelican Hub? Oh, geez. The Pelican Hub is an absolutely fantastic um, celebration of Pelican. You don't necessarily have to own even own Pelican products, but 
it's an excellent excuse uh, for everyone to gather around and um, show off their birds, I believe the term is. <laughs> yes, they're <fun laughs> um, and, and also for, for those of you not entirely convinced, um, for you ink hoarders out there, I, I believe they give out a copy or like a bottle of the uh, the ink of the year typically and a, a goodies bag. I know that the past two I've been to, you've, we've got some pretty interesting swag. Um, so you can be you know, you know, lured by that. But ultimately, whether or not it's um, they do the goodies bags, it is a fantastic opportunity to, or excuse I should say, to catch up with all, all the, your fellow fountain pen friends. Putting the focus on pelicans, you know, it's a great excuse to meet up with people who own some of those pens and try them out for yourself and see if they're for you. I know that I, I didn't know a pelican from a uh, you know shaper or from a pilot when I first started, um, and my first pelican hub was an absolute ball. Um, I learned so much both about pelican pens and people who use them and their ink and just um, enjoying fountain pen community in general. So it's a fantastic night. I would highly recommend joining the fun. Wonderful. Um, so even if you've never been to a Pelican Hub, check it out. You can see where there have been hubs in the past and you can try and you can register and join one of those. Or if you would like to start a new hub location, it's always possible. I think the minimum number of members that have to be registered for a single city is, I think, seven or five. But it's not um, a high bar to cross, you know, grab a bunch of friends who are fountain pen users in your city, get them to all register and you can start your own hub. And that's a great way to meet, you know, new people. Finally, last piece of news, the Sydney Pen Show 2018. Um, we've talked about this in the past. I think registration dates for vendors have closed and the list of vendors is now online at the website, the Sydney Pen Show website. Key highlights, I think, are Dimmick Stationery, Larry Post, our own Max will be there, Max Schumacher, uh, Pensive Pens, that's James Finnis, will also be there. There will also be workshops on bullet journaling, on calligraphy, fountain pen maintenance. Uh, I think that one's run by Tavit and Urban Sketching as well. Uh, the date is the 18th of the 8th, 2018. It's an easy date to remember. It's being held at the Australian National Maritime Museum in Darling Harbour, Go and put it in your diary and you can pre-purchase tickets now on Eventbrite. The link is also in our show notes. Have you already got your ticket, Ruben? Um, I have to admit I haven't yet, but I should probably get onto that. I don't think we, we need tickets because you might be are – you, are you going to be doing a workshop at the show? I believe uh, our good friend Mark Hobson's asked me to do a couple of sessions on calligraphy so I might be there at a stand so if people want to learn how to do that very odd I guess you could say very ornate and um, brash looking calligraphy style um, that's so popular on Instagram then I'll be able to give you a few pointers. Great um, yeah. <laughs> so if you come to the show you can also meet Ruben and of course I'll be there as well. Yeah. Actually, a, lo a lot of people um, involved with the podcast will be at the show. And the two of the main organisers are also hosts, um, Mark and Sophia. You you will hear no end of the Sydney Pen Show in these weeks leading up to the show because we're all very involved and we're very excited about it. And we want as many people to come who are interested in fountain pens in and around Sydney. And if you have to fly up from, from Melbourne to attend, just 
do it. Well, it's our first show. We want to make it a good one so we can hold more like it in the future. And first fair, we um we go down to the Melbourne Pen Show. I'm sure like a fair contingent of the Sydney representatives come down to to crash the party. So we're more than happy to have um, Victorians come and join the fun up here as well. Absolutely. And actually, we can check out the episode that we we did. That was our coverage of the Melbourne Pen Show. Um, I'll have a link for that in the show notes as well. Okay, back to our topic of handwriting. Ruben, your handwriting was not always as gorgeous as it is now, is it? Oh, good Lord, no. No, no. It used to be awful. <laughs> it used to be shocking. Um, not entirely sure even how I got to this point. What was the, the turning point? The turning point was definitely as a, like um, not so much, well, the combination of the, um, the calligraphy and the, the nerdy habits of painting Warhammer figures, probably. Speaking for myself, I would have been in high school quite a few years before you, I think. Um, I graduated year 12 in 2003, I believe, if my memory is not mistaken. And I didn't really use fountain pens um, until after I finished uni. So all through high school, I used first ballpoints and then it was mainly felt tips. Um, And... I can actually, looking back at my handwriting, you can see a marked improvement in my handwriting and my printing specifically as I moved from ballpoint to felt tips. Because felt tips, you really can't push very hard. You know, it requires a light touch and you need to be constantly moving. Because, you know, like if you rest a felt tip for too long, it just starts to bleed and make a big mess on the paper. Yeah, it does that. Um, when you stop on the letter, it does that thing where it just blobs out and you, you can exactly. see the sort of flowering and feathering kind of. Um. Right. And I think that's when I really started to write in cursive, when I started to move towards writing with felt tips and also with gel ink pens. So it didn't quite, it didn't require me to use a fountain pen to start improving my handwriting, but fountain pens definitely helped. It allows me to write very fine strokes and um, with very little pressure. But as is commonly bemoaned in our community, handwriting for most people is not what it used to be. And when someone comes out with a really good hand, it's almost quite miraculous, you know. I think it's something to be remarked upon. It's it's not considered the norm anymore. Maybe it depends on, you know, you could look at it as being... Um, you know whether it's a pragmatic approach or whether you so whether you see writing as a means to an end or whether you see um, the act of writing as also something to enjoy. So, looking at some of the comments that have come through from our our group, people are talking about writing being an optional thing. So when you when they do write, it's it's in block letters or it's in simplified cursive. If they do know cursive. I think some of the comments that we ca- we had said that, you know, people are just not familiar with even holding pens anymore. And you th- who was it who was saying that they, they noticed an alarming number of, uh, I think Alan said the term was full-on death grips, uh, was the <laughs> term used to describe people's approach to holding writing implements. So you could look at it as because it's like whenever they're using the pen, it's a pragmatic thing. You pick up the, the instrument, you scroll something if you need to, if you don't have a computer immediately to hand or your phone or what have you, uh, and then it, you, you go back to using that if you have it. 
whereas I guess some people um, still see it as developing into more of a bespoke thing. I think the argument was that some people presented was it's handwriting seen as like an art form or so, something like knitting or um, sewing or things that yeah. not everyone does mm-hmm. these days. But, you know, people who appreciate handwriting as an art form might focus more on developing a handwriting style or one that they can identify as specifically theirs. I think the I think the the, the comparison you made to knitting and um, yeah. the other comparison that someone else made was towards cooking. And the analogy was that handwriting, as you say, was becoming optional and not everyone really is taught it in the same way that, you know, that they were drilled in handwriting in, you know, decades past. Now, as soon as they learn how to basically hold a pen, right, and to form characters, that's the end of it. There's no time really to coach children to form the characters well or to um, teach them what is the correct way to hold a pen. And the analogy was that, you know, now that uh, handwriting is more of an artisanal skill and to write well is something that very, that few people know how to do anymore. And in just the same way that most of us, you know, aren't taught professionally how to cook, we can, you know, get by on a recipe book, I guess. And if we put some effort into learning it and we follow uh, YouTube tutorials, we can, we can get ourselves to um, a good level of skill, but it's not part of our education. It's not part of our uh, formal education anymore. And our, right. a lot of parents don't teach. Um, well, that's my impression that it's not something that necessarily is taught in the home anymore. Mm. But um, I'm going to try and stop putting words into other people's mouths. And I think <laughs> this is a good time to, um, to actually read some of these comments that we've received because we got a really great range of views And I'll start with Alan because we've already mentioned him a few times and um, he's coming at it from the perspective of a teacher and a tutor. So um, I'm going to read his comment now. Alan says, based on my experiences as a teacher and tutor, it seems like handwriting is becoming more and more of an optional thing in schools. The number of students I teach who don't hold their pen properly, full on death grip all around these days, is alarming. Cursive seems to be all but dead in schools as well. Most of my younger students, about year seven and under, can't even read cursive anymore because they just haven't been taught how. Alan does have first-hand experience of uh, younger kids. So year seven in Australia, I think that's aged 12 and below. I think about 12, 13 is year seven, isn't it? Yeah, probably. Yeah, those, think, were, those days were a while for me. <laughs> yeah, I think I was 12 in, age 12 in year seven. Kids who were bored after I left school, in all honesty. And so their experience of learning handwriting was probably quite different to ours. But that's Alan. Uh, Ruben, did you want to read the next two comments? I think they're both from, let's see, they're both mothers who have young children. So they're coming at it from that perspective. Yeah, so, I, so Kylie had written in and said, I have a six-year-old in year one at primary school and that there is a big focus on handwriting, including how to hold a pencil and letter formation, and it's very connected to their learning to read. And they're saying, she was saying, uh, talking to teachers, there was a shift away from a big focus on handwriting due to technology, but that it has actually swung back in recent years um, as they'd found reduced 
learning in other areas. So they said this is a basic script, though, so not necessarily the cursive style. But um, I can't speak for you, um, Diana, but I certainly remember having those exercise books. That yeah, had, running, writing. Those were the days. <laughs> um, but she was saying, personally, I have to write something down for it to sink in and I also read a hard copy book better than when I read on a screen. And having said that, she says her son owns a Lamy ABC that was a present from her for um, his fifth birthday and has two wing sons, sons and loves writing with them. So yeah, that's, that's lovely, I have to say. Speaking of someone who, who very much cherished the days of learning cursive, get them young. <laughs> and the other comment was from Celia. Celia yeah. says, I have one, I'm assuming I have one ch- kid. Uh, she says, I have one starting high school next year and one who started kindy this year. I've personally always found handwriting to be important and I push it and I teach it. So many parents have told me it is not necessary as by the time my children are sitting important exams like the HSC, they will be doing everything on computers. So far, I think I'm right and they're wrong. My child has been at school for seven years and we are still handwriting exams. I'm pretty confident they will still be doing so in the next six years when my son sits the HSC. Also, handwriting is an art form. It is important to write legibly and enjoyable to write beautifully. I think that's just a really beautiful sentiment. It's important to write legibly and enjoyable to write beautifully. That that's Yeah, that's actually a really beautiful way of putting it. I do agree with you. Because, I mean, there, there is that subtle distinction, isn't there? Because... Um, you don't necessarily have to write like a calligrapher to write legibly. And there's, you know, as long as someone can read it, that's the important thing because other, like, I mean, the whole point of writing is to be understood. Agreed. Um, so, you know, as long as people are writing, I think that's the important thing. Yeah. I mean, I think in this where we're seeing um, the back and forward in the curriculum, um, as Kylie, I think, said, you know, um, because – writing and um, computers are seen as being, you know, rival technologies. Um, you know, we don't want to go too far in one direction and and then, you know, having to swerve back, you know, and, well, correct our course. And that's, that's, I think, necessarily what kind of happens when we're in this time where we're moving to from one technology to the other, right? Because there are people who want to preserve that old technology. And then there's people who are saying, no, but that's holding our children back from, you know, learning the skills that they need when they really get into their exams or they get into the workplace. So um, I, I'm actually really torn about this myself, to be honest. For example, from, from a Chinese point of view, I know in China, a lot of people, the traditionalists, they would say, you know, you you should learn to at least read traditional Chinese characters, if not write them. You know, that's already a step back. Maybe 50 years mm-hmm. ago, they said, you have to read, you have to write traditional characters. Um, it's not enough to just be able to read them. But now most people, I think, in, in the Chinese mainland, they say it's useful to be able to read tra- traditional Chinese characters, the more complicated version of Chinese characters. Yeah. But you don't have to write them. Um, now more people input Chinese characters on a keyboard um, where they don't have to go through strokes, you know, the trouble of remembering stroke order and remembering all the strokes. They just have to remember um, pinyin, which is the phonetic uh, transliteration of Chinese. You know, it's a, it's about writing how it sounds and not the characters behind the sound. So it's, it's much more 
um, it's a much simpler, a much simplified version of inputting a character in a computer. And I think children nowadays, um, that's a more natural way of typing than to type on a computer where um, different keys are different strokes. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, because um, coming from a perspective of someone who'd done Japanese for a bit, it may be a, it's obviously a different system because the, the way the characters are input are slightly different. But on the keyboard, you just type in the phonetic version and then it brings up like a pop-up, um, either on like a, a phone, it'll bring up a pop-up window right. and you select the, the character that you were trying to use. Or on the computer, you like press like the enter key or something, and it cycles through whichever character would match that phonetically. Or sometimes it even automatically shifts it for you yeah. when you're writing to what they think, like based on you it's know, predictive. Like, if you've phonetically written it out, right. that's the the most likely phrase you're trying to come out. And it sort of it takes a lot of the engagement out of the process in a way. Yeah, that's true. It, I, I see what you mean by it being a, a simplification of the process. Do you think it would be a great tragedy if people no longer wrote day-to-day, just wrote um, with their hands? <laughs> Personally, um, I would be quite disappointed if handwriting were to disappear entirely. I mean, just from my perspective, I find I engage much more um, in a process or when I'm thinking if I'm writing something down. If I'm making, like, you know, at, at work, for example, um, I still have to input notes into a, a file when I'm dealing with our with our clients. But if I'm listening to a conversation uh, before I give advice on any anything, I will write, I'll handwrite the notes down and then I will simplify it and I'll type it into a file or, or into a, a, an email or something like that uh, just because... I, I just cannot type and think at the same time. I don't know what it is, but my brain just disengages entirely. And the same tends to go from reading from a screen. When I draft things, I always print them out. So personally, I still see a place for handwriting, whether for convenience or whether for the joy of the art of handwriting. I can only speak from a personal point of view anecdotally. I feel that there's just a certain level of engagement in the process of recording thoughts, um, handwriting that's a little bit more involved and it just makes you more aware I think but that's my that's my take on it I know that's a um the fact that people are more engaged with what they're writing when they write it down on a piece of paper and when they use their hand to write it instead of typing it um I think that's something that a lot of people uh, find to be true for themselves and uh, I think a lot of people mentioned the studies that retention of notes is better when you handwrite it uh, compared to typing it but myself I I have to when I try to get out of my own head I, I kind of get the feeling that we're just so we're so down in the trenches you know and and things are changing so fast it's very hard for us to get a good perspective of where the trend is going because people are so emotional about it and you know we we don't want something we don't want to let things go and change that is really fast is quite traumatic for us right and i have to wonder whether we find it very difficult to uh, read on tablets you know or to take notes on tablets just because of the way that we were raised and it's not something that's you know inherent in us it's just that as human beings it's very hard for us to make that change 
um, once we're past our teens. Yeah, and maybe yeah. and maybe for young children who are brought up in it, it's completely natural to them. So um, I think I'm just getting to that that age in my life when I'm aware of um, my resistance to change, and it's not even unwillingness. It's just it's just harder now for me to to pick up that sort of new modality, um, a new way of engaging with text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe it's just that we're we're from that that awkward generation where tech, we've seen technology become so prevalent and so we're in that interesting sort of halfway point where we grew up learning how to handwrite in a world where technology was not so all-encompassing as it is now. But um, And then, you know, the generations before us now are like truly digitally native. Oh, generations after us. Yeah. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Speaking of generations after us, so the next two comments that I have pointed out are from, I think, recent high school graduates. And the first one is from Sabrina. Sabrina Shao, she wrote, I learnt modern cursive or join-up writing in primary school as part of a process to get our pen license, which was fun at the time and in retrospect now quite useful as it focused on legible handwriting, which I think is useful for exam taking in the latter years of high school and university examinations. However... I think everyone else has made a valid point that handwriting is becoming less and less relevant these days. I don't know if my primary school kept the pen license thing at all. Despite that, I think there's always value in handwriting, especially around information retention and even expression of ideas and thoughts. I've always found handwriting more useful at helping me express my thoughts and ideas more coherently than typing. Sabrina, I think, echoes a lot of what we experience ourselves, Ruben. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In that she feels a little bit torn about... um, (laughs) You know, she sees the future trend as moving less and less towards handwriting, but she prefers it personally because she thinks it helps her um, get her ideas across better. It's yeah, it's it's great to see that you know we're not alone in that that sort of concern. But and it's impossible to really predict where it will go from here. But it is nice to know that although Sabrina, we've we've raised our concerns. It is nice seeing colleagues at examples where there are kids who are still learning so I guess it just depends we can't really predict where it will go but as long as it's still around as long as there are still people who are interested in in keeping handwriting going there's still hope yeah and in the in the vein of keeping handwriting going do you want to read Julian's comment yeah so Julian Chu made the comments uh, that at times like this I always remember the big prediction of the late 1980s and 90s futurists that by the year 2000, we would all have the paperless office. Some changes are faster, some changes are far, far, far slower than anyone can seem to predict. But of all the many people I have regularly had the chance to meet who want to find out more about handwriting and pens, they are overwhelmingly young people. They are interested at least in the things like quills and wax seals that they have seen in Harry Potter or period television. And that can be just the start to the world of calligraphy and fountain pens, just as popular as the desire to send a letter or note that is more permanent than an email or Facebook message. In the age of searching for further meaning and authenticity and social media curation, do not underestimate the power of the handwritten note. So as a handwriting enthusiast, I have great optimism. I have to say I really agree with that sentiment. And it's, yeah, I I think it... Um, Julian really sort of sums up, you know, that that 
uh, very optimistic way of looking at it. I quite like that that stance that they've taken. Yeah, there's no point in it all being doom and gloom. I mean, people have been having dire predictions for ages. Like how was it? Was it Plato or Socrates who was complaining that uh, all youths were disrespectful and uncouth and <laughs> idle chatter? And that was back in what? couple of hundred AD and now we're complaining that youths are uncouth and disrespectful and prone to idle chatter. Not the youths in <laughs> Oceania, obviously. Another optimist, Xavier Shear, he wrote, love letters, poetry and dramatic explanations of all kinds, see photo, require a handwritten, powerfully worded document. Ariel in Times New Roman just won't do. And Underneath his comment, there is a screen cap of Colin Firth as Darcy sitting with head bent at a writing desk. <laughs> so I, I have to agree. Um, handwriting, handwritten notes make a big impression, maybe even more so now because they're so rare. And I know a lot of people don't have much chance to do to practice fancy handwriting except when they're trying to fill out um, birthday cards and cards of a similar nature. Yeah, yeah. I actually make all of my my um, birthday cards and greeting cards, so I can definitely get behind that idea. I can see where, where Xavier's coming from on that one. Yeah, it doesn't quite say the same message as, um, you know, the Hallmark uh, $2.50 card. No, 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 no. You can't be having with that. <laughs> There's a final comment that I really wanted to read, and it's a long one from Steve Watson. So I'm just going to read the, an excerpt. Um, but I, I really wanted to read this because I, I think he summarizes a lot of points in a really eloquent way. So Steve said, I work in a factory with around 50 other people, guys my age and younger, and right up to their early 60s. I'm about the only person outside of the office who writes in anything other than block letters. My handwriting actually draws praise from co-workers, which, for those of you who've seen samples, says a lot about the state of the skill today. That's sad, because communicating via analogue is still important, and making notes by hand is still essential, and aids retention of information. And reading handwriting as opposed to plain text communicates to us things about the writer's state of mind and intention in a way that font cannot. Writing connects us in ways we aren't always aware of. The older I get, the more fond I get for a little less technology in my life. Putting the computer aside and turning to a book. It's not that I'm becoming a troglodyte. I, I, I'm not familiar with that word. It's not that I'm becoming a troglodyte, far from it. But I've grown up with the internet exploding across my field of view. And from that perspective of a time before Netscape and the time of social media, the changes in how we interact face to face are obvious. And they're not all beneficial. We have to know how to use technology and be competent with it, but too many people allow it to replace too much of their intelligence. Writing is one thing, spelling is another. Wow, powerful stuff. That's and it's so eloquently phrased. I really, really love that. Yeah, I, I, I love that comment. And I think he gets across this idea that we're, we are losing something, right? And even though change is inevitable, change inevitably comes with some sort of a loss and it's okay to be sad about that and I think maybe our natural inclination is to try to want to hold on to those things and um, um, venerate them and you know try to elevate them um, and that's perfectly natural and just as natural of course is to see the advantages of the new the fact that typing does have certain advantages that handwriting 
cannot replace. You know, it it allows you to write with speed that is that most people would never be able to accomplish on a, you know, with a pen on paper. I know people will say that, you know, uh, the people who write on shorthand can rival, you know, the fastest touch typist, but they are, I think, on, they're like racehorses and most of us can't hope to aspire to that, that level of skill. There was- very much in the minority. <laughs> Very much in the minority. Whereas most of us now, it's much faster to get words down in a lecture um, via type than it is to handwrite. But handwriting, of course, allows you to be more considered in how you take down information, and that might improve the quality of your notes. So there's always um, sacrifices to be made with each technology. And as long as we're aware of them and we try not to let ourselves be too conservative and, you know, how we move forward, you know, embrace the new, but don't let go of what came before. I think that's a pretty balanced way of approaching it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely, I can definitely get behind that idea. And I think, yeah, in terms of what you are saying about the, what the missing or, or yearning for sort of um, as a, a, a way of approaching recording thoughts, um, looking at the difference between handwriting and typing. Who knows? You know, may, maybe the introduction of this technology will bring other other ways of presenting personality. The example they gave is uh, get was given was the way that there's that personalization with uh, handwriting that you don't get with. Uh, with text, with text, with um, fonts. Who knows? Maybe, you know, with the sheer number of fonts available now with technology, people may create fonts to as an analog of their handwriting and find personalization through technology that way. Right. Or maybe someone was actually, I think it was oh Anthony, who was saying that maybe you know typing is just an intermediate process, and it will be replaced with you know, in no time with mind to screen textual input. You don't only have oh, to think oh. about the word um, and then it will, you know, it will be digitized or maybe even more, maybe um, even words is just an intermediate process. And, you know, because nowadays we already have, it's not just text messages, we have voice messages, we have Snapchat. There are all these different ways of communicating which just did not exist um, a century ago. And text message is maybe seen as very functional and sparse and mm, lifeless because, you know, the, the things on, either, on the two extremes are just much more vivid and uh, much more full of information. You know, there's handwriting on one end and maybe like a video of yourself on the other. And in the middle is just text, which is just boring. <laughs> <laughs> Mm, I don't know. I I am on one hand mildly horrified by the thought of thought to to text because who knows where that would take us. But then again, on the other side, I've also been a huge proponent of the idea of uploading us all of our brains into the cloud. So <laughs> who knows where the, the the nature of communication is going to go in future? On that note, um, are there any f- finishing thoughts, or should we just end it there? Um, no, I think I, don't, I think we've we've covered it. Um, well, maybe because um, we've been reading some of the comments um, from the FPO 
community. If anyone has been inspired from this conversation to to add to the conversation, feel free to to send some comments through to us, maybe to have a look at in future, and you know keep the conversation going because it's it's one that has a lot of depth to it, and everyone I'm sure will have a different view on the topic, and it would be interesting to see what people think. Right. My my only regret is that we really only have an hour and so, and we kind of jump from topic to topic a bit, and um, because neither of us are uh, scholars in any of the topics, really, we just are very <laughs> very interested and um, omnivorous in our knowledge. I guess is how you know omnivorous but shallow in our knowledge yeah, gathering. Maybe someone <laughs> with more depth of of knowledge in the fi- in the field would be able to chime in. And by all means. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you're, um, if you consider yourself an expert in any of the topics that we've covered, we'd love for you to write into us. And um, if there's an opportunity to talk to you, I'd love that as well, because this topic is really interesting to both Ruben and I. Absolutely. I would, I would very much love to continue the conversation with anyone who wanted to, for sure. Okay. Um, we usually finish off our episodes with each host Uh, presenting a recommendation. It doesn't have to be fountain pen related, although it can be. Do you have a recommendation for us, Ruben? Oh boy, yes. I was actually thinking about this. I want to recommend a film called Annihilation. Uh, I saw it on Netflix. I'm not sure if it can be accessed elsewhere, but um, oh my goodness. Oh, I think it is. I completely forgot who the the director is. Um, Garland. Uh, Alex Garland. uh, yeah, and it is stunning. Uh, if anyone has seen Arrival, uh, I would describe it as almost a spiritual successor to that. It explores similar themes, but it's um, it's a bit of a psychological thriller, but it is absolutely gorgeous and a real thought-provoking movie. So I very much recommend people checking it out. Yes, I, I've seen Annihilation. It's based on um, a novella, I think, by Toto. Jeff Vandermeer, so um, a science fiction writer who's part of the the new weird movement. So they write very unconventional sort of science fiction. And um, Alex Garland himself is famous for, I think, directing Ex Machina a couple of years ago, which is also oh, science fiction. That's a fad. Fantastic movie. I loved that one. Yeah, he's, he's obviously very talented. Um, yeah. Because this is only his second film, I, I think. Um, it's But it's gorgeous it's quite thought-provoking and um maybe i'm just tempted to see everything in light of the topics that we were talking about but it's about the movie itself is about um change and evolution and um and letting go of you know things and how change often involves immolation of the past oh wow isn't isn't this apropos right Right? there (laughs) excellent (laughs) Okay, and what 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 your recommendation be? I'd love to hear yours. Oh, my recommendation is also a film. Yeah. So for the last the last fortnight, I believe in Sydney, we've been having the Sydney Film International Film Festival, and uh, this year um, I didn't get to see as many films as I wanted because winter is also um, concert season, and there's like a lot of 
like birthdays and things going on. So I had all these, uh, I had all these screenings lined up in my program, and I ended up having to give away tickets to quite a few sessions because I just couldn't make the scheduling work. But last night, the final night of the festival, I got to see the film that I really wanted to see. It's from a director called Chloe Zhao. She is Chinese born, but she went to study in the U.S. to do film studies, and she's. This is her second film only, and she's been working and making films among the, I think, the Lakota、uh, nation on reservations in,、um, in I think, the southern part of the United States, and she's been making these really quite well studied and naturalistic docu dramas slash,、um, you know, slice of life sort of. American Western dramas—they're very, very lyrical and like very beautiful, but very sparse in dialogue. And、um, the Rider, which is the one that I saw last night, it's based on a true story about a rodeo driver who suffered a traumatic head injury that makes it dangerous for him to ride again. And the Rider in the actual film is played by the character that he's based on. So it's、uh, Brady.、Uh, Jandro, I think his real name. He is playing himself in the film, and his father and his sister also play themselves in the movie. There's a a whole lot of like、um, amateur or non-professional actors in the film. I think all of the actors in the film are non-professional, but it's just、uh, I, it's really hard to describe. I don't think it's like anything that I've seen in recent years,、um, but it's really moving、um, portrayal of life. In a very rarely seen part of the United States, with these very touching, gentle male、uh, characters, that is also very rarely seen in that sort of environment. So it's about breaking down that、um, cowboy mystic, I think. So、um, highly recommended. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's called <laughs> The Rider. The Rider. I'm going to have to check that out myself now. Ruben, it's it's been a joy talking to you again. Yes, yes, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. We need to do it again sometime. Absolutely, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll catch you next time. Yes, definitely. See you then. <laughs> Future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenipsection.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto iTunes, rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends. If you want to share your thoughts, suggestions, or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenipsection@gmail.com. You can also comment at us on the Nip Section Facebook page or at the Nip Section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nip Section is the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. Our producers were Diana Dye, Chuck Fontano, and Sharon Zah. Recording and editing was done by Diana Dye. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H Smith, with artwork by Melissa Graff. Thanks for listening.